0: It's so good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. So last week we finished up our study in Philippians. We finished up there and then this week we are going to move straight into the book of Colossians. Now, Colossians was written by Paul. It was a letter to the church in Colossae. And the church there in Colossae would have been made up mostly of Gentiles. Okay, there would have been some Jews, but it was mostly a Gentile place. Colossae is close to Laodicea. And we'll see in the last chapter of Colossians, Paul asks for the two letters that he sent to the church in Laodicea and the church in Colossae to be swapped so they could each read these letters. Um, and apparently this church in Laodicea would have been struggling with much of the same things that the church in Colossae was. So again, just that exhortation and kind of the swapping of these letters so that they each get a perspective on their, their issues. And in Acts 19, and specifically verse 10 kind of hints at this for us, but it says, and this continued for two years, speaking of... Paul's spreading the gospel, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So this is impressive. About 30 years after uh, Acts 1, the gospel has already made its way to most of Asia. And this little event right here uh, was written about Paul in Ephesus. So he was preaching in Ephesus, and then from Ephesus, Uh, the word of the Lord spread throughout Asia. So that would have been the catalyst to this church in Colossae. Uh, It would have been right there in that area, and no doubt uh, the preaching of the word in Ephesus would have spread into Colossae. And by the language that Paul uses here in this letter, it's evident that he had never visited this church. So, like I said, it was an outgrowth of some of his other missionary journeys and his other church plants, but he himself did not actually plant this church. And we'll see, I think it's in verse 7, that um, Epaphras is who we think probably planted this church and continues to shepherd and teach in this church. It also looks like Paul sent the letters To the Ephesians, the Colossians, and Philemon together. So he wrote them all out and he sent them all from his prison in Rome. Uh, It would have been during his first imprisonment there, and it would make sense because a lot of the content of these three letters, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, are much in the same spiritual thought. Like they're much, um, they have a lot in common. Okay, so that makes sense that he would have written them all around the same time. So let's go ahead and get started moving through Colossians. uh, Chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So like I said, Paul had not actually visited this church before. He's now kind of demonstrating his authority as an apostle of Christ to this church. And Timothy, our brother. Verse 2, to the saints and faithful faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. So he tells who's writing this letter, and he addresses it to the church in Colossae. He says, to the saints. Now, we kind of have a distorted view of sainthood. And, you know, that's whatever. But saints in the New Testament are actually just the believers. So if you look around the room today, there are saints in here. And that is the saints that he's talking about here. It's not some ethereal thing. Uh, it's, it's very um, tangible, and it's relatable to us. So to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, we see this greeting of grace to you and peace. So, remember, grace comes before peace. You have to know the grace of God before you can have the peace of God. And uh, that's a common greeting for Paul to use in his letters. So, verse 3, We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Now, this is impressive to me because he doesn't even know these people, yet he's always praying for them. Um. I think that's incredible. Uh, it's hard, even as you know, to be constantly praying for someone that you have a close relationship with, uh, like your son or daughter, maybe your parents. They need your prayer, and you try to, to always come back to that and pray for them, but it's it's difficult. And the fact that Paul is praying for these believers who he has never met is pretty inspiring to me since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints so he heard again hasn't visited he only heard about them he heard of their faith in Christ Jesus now in Christ Jesus is where they place their faith not in calvary or in first baptist or in my confirmation. um, it's, It's an important distinction. So we have the faith being placed in Jesus Christ alone, and not faith being placed in other Christians. Now, there is a good way to trust and have faith in your fellow Christians. There's also a bad way to do that. So as a brother in Christ, I may trust you, to help me get through something or to, to bring a word to me from the Lord, and I trust you in that way. But do not mistake that trust and that faith for like the saving faith of Jesus Christ. So whenever we place an expectation on someone else, just another human, that should be placed in the Lord, we have big trouble. And if you haven't experienced it yet, you will. But I'm sure many of you can attest to the fact that people will let you down every time. And as sad as it is, everyone you know will either let you down or they'll die first. So it's a fact of life. People will let you down. The one person that will not let you down, is the person of Jesus Christ. And that is where we are to place our faith. So it's encouraging to see that Paul heard all the way in Rome of the faith that this church had. So that's something that we should take note of. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. So we have the faith then we, we see the love coming in, the love for all the saints. Now, we went through First John just a little while back, and he talked about love for the brethren, for your fellow believers, and we know that that's a mark of Christ. That's a mark of the new birth. So that love for all the saints is again attesting to this church's uh, faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 5 because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. So, we see faith, we see hope, and we see love. Okay? And it goes in that order. Faith, hope, and love. So, if we have not the faith in Jesus Christ, then we do not have the hope of Jesus Christ. But if we do have the faith in Jesus Christ, we also have the hope in Jesus Christ, and then we can show the love that he's shown us. Okay, so it it moves kind of in that sequence. But here, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. So this hope which is laid up for them in heaven is why they can love all the saints. So again, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you have heard the, heard before in the word of the, tr- the truth of the gospel, verse 6, which has come to you and it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. Now, uh, we sang a song just a second ago, and we said, I'm happy to be in the truth. And that stuck out in my mind, and I thought, yeah, I am happy to be in the truth. Uh, In the midst of all these lies, um, I find it comforting that we, we have the truth, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit. Let's let's revisit this um this idea of hope. Okay? We see some people in Christian circles talking about the end times, the antichrist, the rapture. They say that's unimportant. It doesn't inform anything in your life right now. So why even study it? Why why know that? Well, in response to that, I would say it's an it's informative to look at 1st Thessalonians to realize that Paul was only with that church for about 3 weeks and if we look at what he was teaching that new church it's a lot to do with the end times like that's that was a very heavy emphasis that he placed on these things so to me that tells me that you know there is some weight to this we shouldn't just look over it Um, Now, I'm not saying that it's as important as a saving faith in Jesus Christ, because it's not. But it does inform how we live. I mean, that's just how it is. If we expect an imminent return of Christ, then we will live a certain way. That expectation will inform how we live. But without this hope this looking forward to the new earth and the new heaven that we know is coming, what do we have? We don't have a lot here. What we do have is garbage anyways. So if we don't have that hope looking forward to Christ, we have nothing. So that is the power of hope. And that's why I think Paul probably spent so much time and energy investing into the church in Thessalonica about these things in the end times, okay? So, so there's the, the hope that informs the love of this church. Verse 7, As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. So we meet this character, Epaphras, and you might be thinking, ooh, that sounds an awful lot like Epaphroditus from Philippians, which it does. But I think they were definitely different people. There's not complete agreement on that, so you're welcome to think what you will. But um, Paul later refers to Epaphras as one of your number. So to the Colossians, he's referring to Epaphras as someone from Colossae, or in the very least, someone who's at Colossae now and who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And so that word minister, that is diaconos; it's deacon, or uh, like it's translated here in the New King James, Minister. And this can mean deacon or also like a Christian teacher or pastor. Okay, and that's the definition that we kind of see here. We see Epaphras as this teacher of the church. So uh, that's one reason that I think that Epaphras probably was the planter of the church in Colossae. And if not the planter, then definitely like a pastoral figure, like someone who would have been actively teaching Uh, constantly the love that this church is displaying is the evidence of their new birth verse eight who declared to us your love in the spirit so again we have the love connected to the spirit and a new birth verse nine for this reason we also since the day we heard it do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So, we're coming into a passage where Paul is praying for these believers. He's telling them what he's been praying for. So, if you wonder how you should pray for someone else, I would encourage you to really take a a good long look at this. Because that will give you a good example, um, and we know Paul's heart is right in praying for these things, so again, we can pray for these things and know that we're on solid ground, but I'm not saying that we need to pray this prayer exactly okay i I'm not advocating for like reciting a prayer. Um, in Romans eight twenty six and 27, uh, it says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So that really tells me that prayer is a matter of the heart. Okay, so... If we can pray and we can have that communication with God without even saying a word, that tells me that the verbiage that we use, the actual movement of our diaphragm and our vocal cords, that doesn't mean very much to God. Uh, it's it's more of the condition of your heart oriented towards Him that He takes note of. So let's look at the orientation of Paul's heart as he addresses God for these believers in Colossae. So verse 9 again, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to ask, this is the first thing, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So he says we do not cease to pray for you. And I mentioned it again uh, a little while ago, but he hasn't met these people, and so it's crazy for me to think that he can pray always for them. Uh, that is a discipline, no doubt. Um, first thing he mentions, he says that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will, God's will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And what a great thing to pray for someone! that they would be filled with the knowledge of His will. Well, that's great, but how do I know God's will? Well, He's revealed it to you in Scripture. And there's many passages and even specific verses that literally say the will of God is and tells you what the will of God is. Uh, For example, that all should be saved. That is the will of God. He wishes no one to perish. So... Open up your Bible, and um, He will reveal that to you. And ask Him to reveal it to you. Uh, he He wants you to know what He wants. Okay? So, the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. It's interesting looking back on history, the different cultures, and how they sought to get at truth. You see the Greeks... Um, I don't remember which specific group of them, but there was one group of Greeks who looked for truth in experience. They would search all sorts of experiences, uh sexual experiences, drunkenness um, you know anything they could really get their hands on, and they thought that that was the way to truth. But you look at the Jews, and the Jews always knew that the truth was contained in Scripture, in a book. So, like, even Solomon, um, he searched around in those things of the world, and his conclusion at the end was it's all worthless. And he concluded that to serve God and to keep His commandments, that's good enough. I and mean, that's, that's where truth is. So I... I Thought that it was cool looking back, realizing that the Jews always knew that this is where the truth came from. So filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Verse ten that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So This being filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding is to the end that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, and being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So, um, Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Again, echoing this idea, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There are things that we will do throughout our lives that God has predestined for us. It's these good works that we're talking about. Okay, and it's not something legalistic. Okay, Uh, it's just something that you will do to serve Him. So if we look back in Exodus, and I love this example, but if you look in Exodus 31, specifically verses 1 through 5, it talks about Bezalel. And I'll read that for us real quick. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, to to design artistic works to work in gold, in silver, in bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. So Moses is up on Mount Sinai right now, getting instructions from God, specifically how to build the tabernacle, and right here, who was going to build the tabernacle. So while Moses is up on the mountain getting these instructions from God, Bezalel is back down at the camp, and he has no idea that any of this is going on. Okay, who knows what he was doing? But God is giving Moses this instruction, and Bezalel doesn't even know it yet, but he has been gifted. And he's been called by God to build the tabernacle. So God has predestined Bezalel to walk in this good work. Okay? So we see all this taking place, and we wonder, like, just how much of these things that we do has been specifically said in front of us so that we can walk in these good works and please God. And don't think that there's any selfish motive on the part of God for wanting you to do good things and to serve Him. He loved us first, so we love Him back. Okay, And we'll see in a little bit, it talks about the preeminence of Christ. So if it wasn't for Him, then we wouldn't even be here so we we do owe all to him, and there's no selfishness in in asking us to do the things that serve him uh ultimately we'll We'll be rewarded crowns for the good things that we've done and just throw them back at his feet because that's just who he is he's so good to us so um so we see that every believer has been tasked from the beginning of time, with certain good works. And God will equip you for those works. See, he's filled Bezalel down at the camp with his spirit. And no telling how many years Bezalel studied all of these manners of craftsmanship. It says working gold, silver, design artistic works, Uh, cutting jewels, setting the jewels, carving wood, and it throws in there in case they missed anything, and to work in all manner of workmanship. So I can't imagine the preparation uh, just really would have been a life's work to learn all these crafts for Bezalel. While he didn't even know what he was getting into, but it was for a purpose, and God set him in that place so that he could do these things. And increasing in the knowledge of God. We should be growing in the knowledge of God as we progress in our walk with him. It's pretty normal if you see a mama holding a bottle for a baby, feeding it, you know, and that baby, all it knows is milk, so it eats milk for every meal. But it'd be strange if you saw about a 50-year-old man with his mother beside him feeding him milk, right? So we don't want to be the Christian that grows up and never gets weaned off of milk. We want to increase in the knowledge of God. And we do that by spending time with Him, by spending time in His Word. And He will teach us those things. Verse 11, Strengthened with all might, according to His glorious power, for all patience and longsuffering with joy. Okay, I would not have paired these items together. Uh, it says that you may work, walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to His glorious power. So when you think of like the might and the power of God, it's usually like in a sense where you'll overwhelm your enemies. Like in the Old Testament, God has helped the Israelites take this city and that is demonstrating His power and His might. But now we see the power and might strengthening us so that we can be patient and long-suffering with joy. Those are things that I would not in my flesh put together and no doubt we need his might and his power to be long suffering and especially to do it with joy in james uh, chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 it says my brethren count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So it's this idea of sanctification. We go into these trials, we're tested, our patience is tested, and it produces fruit in us. It makes us more like Christ, okay, because he is patient. He's been patient with me my whole life, and he continues to be patient with me, and I'm thankful for that. So, when we are sanctified in that way, it produces patience in us, and we become more like Christ. Giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Back up to verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Somebody asked me, hey, how do you know that you're getting into heaven? What caused that? I mean, I don't see much good in you. Like, how does that work? I'm qualified, okay? I've made a deal. I provided the sinner, and he provided the Savior. That's a pretty sweet deal. I'm not complaining about that. So, I am qualified. That's the only qualification that you need, okay? You present yourself as a faithful servant. Ask him to be the Lord of your life, and that's your qualification. If you get to heaven... And you don't have a personal relationship with Christ, God asks you, Hey, why should I let you in? You say, Well, I went to Calvary down there. We do it right at Calvary. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong answer. You say, Well, I had this great preacher down there. He taught me taught me some great stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong answer. So It's the only qualification that you need. It's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is what qualifies you to be a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in the light. And it says he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. He's literally taken us out of this world and placed it in his kingdom. Okay? And it says, kingdom of the son of his love. It's by Jesus that this kingdom is able to flourish. 14, in whom, talking about Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. We sang another song this morning. The precious blood of the lamb. There's power in that blood. And we have redemption through that blood for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 15, now coming out of this um, prayer for his fellow believers that are in Colossae, and we're going into a different uh, idea, says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, All things were created through him and for him. Now, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. When it says he is the image of the invisible God, that word image is where we get the word icon. So it is literally like an impression of God on the world. So, you had kings back in this time who would wear a ring, and there would be a seal on the ring. They would press the seal into the hot wax on a letter or something that they sealed up, and that was an impression. Much in the same way, you see now, like mothers uh, doing little plaster impressions of their baby's feet or hands. You know what I'm talking about? So, you pour the plaster in a little container. You take the baby's hand and you press it in the plaster that's making an impression of the baby's hand in the plaster and it's it's a really accurate impression you get you see the fingerprints, the lines on the palms uh, it's very detailed so that is a similar idea that we see Jesus is an impression of the father he is the image, the icon. Of the invisible God. Now, if you look way back at Genesis, it says that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. Now, God the Father is spirit, okay, but God the Son is flesh. Adam and Eve were created in the likeness of Jesus Christ. It says He was the firstborn over all creation. Now, the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses will tend to take this little piece of a verse and say, oh, if he was the firstborn, he was born, and he had to have a cause, therefore he is less than God. And that's how they get the idea of Jesus being less than God. But if you take a look at even the next verse, you'll see that there's something that challenges that idea. Uh, it says, For by him all things were created, that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. So, I mean, this and even verse 17, and he is before all things and in him all things consist, this gives the opposite impression. Okay? So, if we zoom out from just that little piece of a verse, we can see more clearly the idea that the scripture is trying to convey to us. So Jesus is equal with God. He is God. And he was there with God when everything was created. It says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Just to make sure you get the point, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, All things were created through him and for him. So even John 1-1 echoes the same idea. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We know the Word is referring to Jesus Christ. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Okay, I really like this and its implications. So we're going to take a second and look at this. It says, He is before all things. Same idea that we just talked about. He is preeminent. He is before all creation. Everything that came into existence came into existence by Him. And in Him all things consist. Not only did He create everything, but He holds everything together. He is literally the glue that is keeping all of this here. Okay, and we'll look at that. In Romans 11.36, it says, For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. So this even adds another element to this idea. Here in Colossians, we see all things are created from him and through him. Now in Romans, we see everything is coming back to him. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So by him, all things were created, and back to him, everything will go. So keep that idea in mind as we move forward. Has anyone, I'm sure many people have, but have you tried to make the two positive ends of a magnet connect? It's pretty hard. you got to use some serious grunting to get them together. And then even when you, you kind of get them close, they like slip off of each other. It's very difficult. So it's the same idea that we have with like protons and electrons. So if you look at the subatomic structure, the structure of an atom you see this cluster of protons and neutrons in the middle. And scientists call it the nucleus. So the nucleus of the atom is all these protons crammed together. You have all these electrons orbiting outside of the nucleus. Now, if you know something about magnets, you know that positive, or two positive-like forces repel each other. And you know that opposite forces attract each other. So if you put that positive end in the magnet up against a negative end, that's that's what makes it stick together. That's how a magnet works. And it's the same way with these subatomic particles. If you put two positive protons and you try to stick them together, they don't want to go. Okay, And just to give you an idea of how immense this force is between uh the positive charges if you took one gram of protons and that's one one hundred fifty fourth of a pound, and you put one gram on the north pole, one gram on the south pole, it would take fifty thousand pounds on top of each of those grams of protons to keep them from separating to keep them there. Now the earth is about eight thousand miles in diameter. So imagine the force that those, those um, subatomic particles are having to endure to be stuck together in the nucleus of an atom. Okay? And scientists don't know how that happens. Um, that's one of the mysteries that modern science has. But um, equally as impressive as all those protons coming together, is the, nucle- the, the electrons staying away from the protons. Because we know that different charges attract each other. So there's this compressive force holding the nucleus of the atom together, and there's this pulling of the electrons away from the protons. And that's mind-boggling. And nobody knows how it's done. But um, in him, all things consist. He holds everything together. And he is the sustainer of his creation. Now, that's all great, but what does it mean? At Golgotha, Jesus was sustaining his creation that was beating him. He held together the fist of the soldiers that battered his face in. He held together those fragments of bone in the whip that tore the flesh off of his back. He held it together willingly. In an instant, he could have let it all go, started over. And I couldn't have blamed him for doing that. I mean, if you looked at the state of his creation in my flesh, that's probably what I would have done. But his love was greater than that. And he chose to hold that whip together, to hold together those nails that were being driven through his wrists. The cross, he held it together, literally, while he was hung up on it, while he was gasping for air, his already flogged back, rubbing up and down the rough wood as he was trying to take his last breaths. And he did it all willingly. Remember, he had the power to stop it, but he chose not to. That's why this verse means so much. Because he holds everything together, he has the power to let it go. Now, if you think of a spring, the force that it pushes out with uh, has to be less than the force it takes to compress it. So in the same way, if you look at an atom, when an atom is split, all of that energy that is released, the force to hold that atom together has to be greater than the force that's released when the atom's split. That's crazy. The power that God has to hold each of these tiny atoms together through his whole creation... And he chose to continue to exert that force to hold everything together while he was being mocked and spit on and tortured and hung up on the cross. That's why verse 17 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence? Now you say, well, he wasn't really the firstborn from the dead. Lazarus was raised before him. And that's true in a sense. Lazarus was raised from the dead before Christ was. But Christ is the one who is raised from the dead through which everyone else finds life. He is the preeminent who was raised from the dead. From him, all others have life. He died, was risen, and in that he conquered death. He was the first to conquer death. And then he passes it on to us as heirs of that inheritance. And we get to spend eternity in the new heaven and the new earth that we know is coming. We get to spend forever with our creator and our sustainer. That's exciting. But there will be a time when God does loosen his grasp on the universe, and he lets it go. In Second Peter 3.10, we see this. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the earth. And the works that are in it will be burned up. So, in this day of the Lord, we see that the elements will melt with fervent heat. That word melt, it means to loose, to break up, or to break down. That sounds a whole lot like just the release of everything, letting those protons come apart, releasing that energy. And it will be hot. It's a fervent heat. And the fact that it says elements, the smallest part of our universe, these elements, literally the atoms, they will melt with fervent heat. That sounds a lot like he just releases his grasp. He will withdraw this sustaining power that he's currently imparting on the earth. Now, fortunately for us, we can look at the next couple of verses of 2 Peter, and this is something that we can hold on to. It says, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That sounds like a great place to be. And I'm so excited that we all get to share in that one day. This is the hope that we have. We've been dwelling on hope for a little bit. This is what we look forward to. Okay, so as you go into the world this week, look forward. Look back on what Christ did and look forward on what it's all coming to. Okay, and be encouraged in that. Okay, let's close with a word of prayer. We'll go to the Creator and the Sustainer.